The Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I know we don't have enough members here to, uh, to, to vote, but I think it'd be good to get the front end um, out of the way, and I want to thank everyone for being here today. On the, on the agenda for today, we have seven pieces of legislation, six nominations, and a number of Foreign Service officer lists. First, we'll consider the eight Foreign Service officer list of nearly 100 personnel, personnel referred to the committee. I support all of these appointments and promotions and would like to thank all of these officers for their service. We will also consider six nominations, including several important new ambassadors. I want to thank my colleagues for helping the committee work through the nominees in an appropriate fashion and to allow us to take these steps forward today. Next, we'll consider six resolutions on the agenda. The first resolution, SRES 375, marks the annual effort to draw attention to tens of millions of people around the world trapped in modern slavery today. The effort known as End It Day took place on February 25th of this year. And I want to thank everybody here for their efforts uh, towards a, a modern slavery bill itself. I want to thank Senator Cardin for support of all and all of you for your support for this, uh, uh, this effort. The second resolution, SRES 368, supports efforts by the government of Colombia to pursue peace and the end of the country's enduring internal armed conflict and recognizing United States support for Colombia at the 15th anniversary of playing Colombia. Colombia is our friend and ally. We need to remain engaged to make sure Colombia can hopefully consolidate peace under the rule of law. Um, we commend Senator Cardin for his leadership in introducing this resolution. I want to thank him and Brandon Yoder of his staff for working with us to incorporate our perspectives as well. This resolution should be the beginning of the work we need to do regarding Columbia and this committee going forward. As we consider SRS 388, a resolution supporting the goals of International Women's Day, I want to, I want to commend Senator Shaheen and her co-sponsors from both parties for bringing this resolution to the committee. Also want to thank her and Senator Cardin and their staff for working with us to develop the text of the amendments we are considering today. This resolution underscores the indispensable role that women play in economic, political, and cultural progress of humanity. It is important that we take stock of what has been accomplished and what remains to be done to ensure that girls and women can achieve their full potential under equal conditions. We will also consider SRS 392, to a resolution that expresses profound concern over the political pro prosecution of the former president of Maldives and urges the Maldives government to take all necessary steps to redress this injustice and to ensure due process and freedom from political pers persecution of people um, of the Maldives. I want to thank Senator Leahy and all the co-sponsors of this resolution, including several members of this committee for bringing this before the committee and for working with us on this resolution. The rights to due process and freedom from political uh, prosecution are fundamental to any democracy and to peace and stability around the world. We'll also consider SRS 378, a resolution expressing the sense of Senate regarding the courageous work and life of Russian opposition leader Boris Nemstov and reviewing the call for full and transparent investigation into the tragic murder in Mo and his tragic murder in Moscow on February 27, 2015. I want to thank Senator Johnson for maintaining attention on Russian efforts that may exist to silence the voices of dissent. The killing of Boris Nemstov serves 
as another example of the risks that Russian reformers face in the efforts to promote growth and democratic ideals within the Russian state. SRES 383, a resolution recognizing the importance of the United States-Israel economic relationship and encouraging new ideas of cooperation is also on the agenda today. I would like to thank Senator Perdue for sponsoring this resolution as well as Senators Isaacson, Rubio, and Coons for co-sponsoring. I'd also like to take the time to express my deepest condolences for the loss of Taylor Force, a Vanderbilt student who tragically lost his life this week in a senseless stabbing attack in Israel. Taylor was in Israel to learn about entrepreneurship opportunities, something this resolution promotes. Israel is an important political and economic partner of the U.S. and has a large and diverse economy. The U.S. The U.S.'s economic partnership with Israel has contributed to innovations that benefit the people of both nations. Given the serious challenges that face Israel, the United States, and the world, it is important to show our friends like Israel that we recognize the importance of, economic, of our economic relationship. One resolution on the agenda, SRS 370, will be held over for this business meeting uh, to respect uh, uh, Senator's wishes. Glad to do that. We, we expect to work through any issues and include it on the markup in the near future. Finally, on the agenda, we will consider SRS 1252, the Global Food Security Act of 2015. With an amendment, the Global Food Security Act represents the collaboration of Senators Isaacson, Casey, Cardin, Coons, and myself in what authorized food security development programs currently underway at USAID. The bill also reauthorizes USAID's International Disaster Assistance Account and for the first time authorizes emergency food security program that has been providing emergency food assistance to places around the world where food for peace traditionally cannot reach due to U.S. commodity and cargo preferences. I have co-sponsored this bill and urge all of you to join me in its passage. I'm sorry for such a long opening. We have a lot of business today. We'll try to do it very promptly. But with that, I want to recognize our very distinguished uh, ranking member and my friend, Senator Cardin. Well, thank you very much, uh, Chairman Corker, and thank you very much for scheduling uh, this markup, the business session, and then we have a, an important hearing that, that will take place immediately thereafter with uh, nominations to very important positions. So we appreciate the, the patience of our distinguished guests. Uh, Chairman Corker has been incredible in moving legislation through our committee uh, and moving resolutions through and, and moving nominations, and I very much appreciate that. The last issue you mentioned, S-1252, the Global Food Security Act of 2015, is a very important piece of legislation. I want to congratulate our colleagues, Senator Casey, Isaacson, and Coons, uh, for their strong leadership on bringing us to this moment. Mr. Chairman, uh, your help made this possible, and recognizing that this is an area where we have traditional disputes between the Agriculture Committee and our committee, between NGOs and USAID, uh, you um, showed your diplomacy at the highest level to be able to get us to this moment where we can finally get uh, this bill done. Just to underscore the importance, today in Ethiopia, because of the drought, the hunger issues are dramatic. There is no one single answer. Uh, feed the future is important. Uh, local uh, capacity is important. Emergency assistance is important. 
And this legislation deals with the full gamut of uh, tools that we have available to deal with, with hunger. So I thank you very much for your, your leadership and allowing us to reach this moment where we can pass out the Global Food Security Act. Uh, I also appreciate your extraordinary leadership on modern day slavery and the resolution that you authored, and I'm proud to join you on that. Uh, anytime that we can put a spotlight on the millions of victims of modern day slavery, we need to do that because uh, we need to make continued progress. I am proud of U.S. leadership on, uh, on this issue. We have legislation we hope that will be enacted uh, shortly uh, under our chairman's leadership that will provide incentives for international uh, uh, resources being used to free those who have been victimized by, by slavery. Uh, just to give you one example, I was in Namibia uh, with, with Senator Coons and Senator Flake just recently. The country's doing fairly, doing well. Uh, they have survived Senator Flake's uh, uh, young uh, uh, missionary work in, in, in that country. Uh, but they're, they're, Namibia is really doing well. But they do have a problem, as do all countries, on trafficking. We raised that issue, and we got national attention in that country raising that issue, and I ex expect there will be some progress made. So we need to continue to put the spotlight on it, and thank you for the resolution that you have authored uh, that we will uh, support today. In regards to Plan Columbia, I was uh, pr uh, proud to, to, to uh, offer that resolution. I thank you for your co-sponsorship and Senator Kane for your help on, on Plan Columbia. Uh, look, 15 years ago, we thought that was going to be a failed state. Today, it's a thriving economy, still has issues, but is, is one of the leading countries in our hemisphere as, as far as a turnaround and progress that is being made. It was, a, it was wonderful to have uh, President Santos here, and, and uh, this resolution continues our interest to make sure that they continue the progress that we've seen over the last 15 years. Senator Shaheen, thank you for your resolution on International Women's Day. Uh, it is very clear to me how a country treats its women will be a barometer as to how well that country will do. It's, we see it over and over again, and I, I hope people will take the time to really delve into the resolution that Senator Shaheen has authored, because it points out, yes, we can take pride in progress that we've made, the, the uh, Millennium Development Goals, and the, uh, that have put gender equity as one of the major objectives of the international community in the development assistance programs and NGOs working together, but there's still hundreds of millions of young girls who are married before the age of 15. There are still hundreds of millions of, of women who live in countries that have not criminalized domestic violence. So we still have a lot of work to do, and I thank Senator Shaheen for giving us an opportunity to express ourselves collectively on, on this very important subject. Mr. Chairman, we have several uh, resolutions that deal directly with human rights. Uh, thanks to Senator Leahy for S392 that deals with the conviction of the former president, Mohad Nasheed, in, uh, in regards to Maldives. Uh, this legislation speaks to the injustices that have been done in that country, and I'm glad we're going on record. Uh, we're also going on record, once again, on a pattern of conduct in Russia, uh, where they have violated the rights of its citizens. In this case, uh, the tragic death of Boris Nepsov. Uh, it's been one year, the anniversary, and I, I thank Senator Johnson for bringing this resolution before us uh, to point out that this country, this Senate, we are going to continue to put spotlights on what's happening in Russia because it's unconscionable, it's a continuing pattern, and it's affecting world stability. And Senator Johnson, thank you for taking the leadership 
on, on that resolution. I, I want to uh, thank uh, Senator Perdue, Senator Coons, and others in regards to the, uh, the resolution in regards to the U.S.-Israel uh, economic relationship and encouraging new areas of cooperation. I join uh, Senator Corker in expressing our deep condolences to the family of the American who was killed in, in Israel, but to the violence that takes place in that part of the world and in Israel. Uh, it's another reason why we need to stay committed to our partnership with Israel so that we can bring peace to that, that region. Uh, I, I respect uh, the right of holding over the uh, ASEAN resolution. It's uh, an important moment uh, when we had the Sunny, Sunny Land Summit uh, where the U.S. showed our direct interest in East Asia, and I know we'll get a chance to, to act on that in the, uh, in the next business session. Uh, all the nominees that are here for, uh, for action, I strongly support in the FSO list, and I thank the chairman for bringing forward these nominations. Well, thank you, and again, I want to thank all the members for being here, and uh, I want to apologize to the many people here that we have this business meeting uh, first, although I think much of your much of the presence here today is relative to you, so we thank you. Uh, the first order of business for today's agenda will be the eight foreign service lists. Senator Cardin, do you have any comments, any additional comments? No, I thank you for bringing them forward. Would anyone else like to make comments relative to the list? If there's no further discussion on these lists, I would entertain a motion to approve these lists and block. So, so moved. The second? Second. So moved and seconded. Question is on the motion to approve the eight foreign service list and block. All those in favor say aye. aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The appointments and promotions are agreed to. Next, in the interest of time, I would ask the committee to proceed on block to vote in consideration of the following nominees before the committee. Uh, Catherine Novelli, Karen Stewart, Amos Hochstein, Robert Riley, Matthew Matthews, and Marcella Escobari. Um, I want to thank all these nominees for their willingness to settle into these positions. Senator Cardin, do you have any additional comments? Again, I appreciate the way that these nominations have been moved in a timely manner. Is there, is there any member who would like to? Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to pull out agenda item number 11, Mr. Amos Hochstein. Okay. Is that a separate vote? Uh, yes, I'd like to make a discussion of that, but I'm happy to move ahead with all of the others if you'd like to move first with uh, the approval of all the other nominees, Mr. Chairman. Okay. Um, is there a motion that we vote on all of them in block? I would make that motion with the exception of the Hochstein right. uh, nomination. Is there a second? Second. All in favor? Aye. All opposed? With that, the ayes have it, and would you like to now speak to this nomination? Yeah, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, uh, yeah, I have long-term concerns with the position of the Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of uh, Energy Resources. As the chairman of the subcommittee that oversees international energy policy, uh, I understand the important role that energy plays in our national security. Uh, my opposition to the nomination centers around concerns with the Bureau of Energy Resources at the U.S. Department of State, not the specific individual uh, who's been nominated. The, the new bureau is, is adding to the duplication, the redundancies, and the conflicting lines of authorities on international energy policy. 
By confirming an assistant uh, secretary position, the Senate would be signaling its approval of, this gla of the glaring problems that exist there. Uh, at a time when our nation is facing significant financial pressures, the U.S. Department of State should not be increasing its budget and size, especially through the creation of uh, new bureaus. The Bureau of en Energy Resources was unilaterally created, unilaterally created by Secretary Clinton without input or authorization of Congress in 2011. When originally created, the Department of State explained that it would only consolidate staff positions and use existing resources for the Bureau. But within a year of making those assurances, the Bureau requested a 40 percent increase in staffing. The Bureau went from 53 positions to its current total of 91 on personal staff. This, despite its initial claim to use existing resources, it's clear the Bureau is going to continue to expand and grow and with it the size of the Department of State. So what exactly did we get from the unilateral creation of a Bureau that grew and expanded the size of the State Department? Did we get a Bureau? Uh, that is consistent, streamlined, and efficient? No, it, this is a bureau filled with inefficiencies, redundancies, confusion. The Office of the Inspector General released um, a report just last month, and I'm going to, Mr. Chairman, ask that this report be made part of the record. Without objection. Uh, this uh, Inspector General's report uh, raised the organizational and structural problems of the Bureau of Energy Resources. Uh, and the report explains, uh, number one, and I have it up here on, on a poster board, uh, organizational stove piping and lacking of communications and coordination create inefficiencies through duplication, overlapping conflicting or unclear responsibilities, and inter-office rivalries. So a quarter of Bureau employees interviewed told the Inspector General that their portfolios were unclear or overlapped with other staff members. Next, did we get a Bureau that is entirely responsible for international energy policy within the State Department? No. Other bureaus and offices within the Department of State still make decisions about international energy policy. According to the State Department, the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs was responsible for the U.S. advocating for restrictions on financing to build coal power, uh, coal power plants overseas at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. I think it's important to point out that the State Department has a coordinator for international energy affairs to work on energy issues uh, in foreign policy, which was created by Congress, separate from this, that, from this agency. So did we get a bureau that is ultimately responsible, accountable, and in charge of our nation's international energy policy for the U.S. government? No. Numerous U.S. government agencies are responsible for working on energy issues. The Department of Energy, Department of Commerce, De uh, Department of Interior, Department of Treasury, the Energy Information Administration, and the National Security Council. The authorities aren't clearly defined, which allows agencies the ability to shift responsibility for decision-making and then deflect accountability that they should have to Congress. An example of this shifting responsibility and decision-making by agencies is demonstrated at the World Bank. The Treasury Department, not the State Department, or the Department of Energy is in charge of energy <laughs> policy at the World Bank. So when we asked the nominee if the, Bureau was if the Bureau was responsible for the disastrous energy policy to block financing of coal-fired power energy projects at the World Bank, he said no, the Bureau of Energy Resources wasn't even involved in the policy decisions regarding the public financing of coal-fired power plants, energy projects through the World Bank and other development institutions. The Treasury Department has the jurisdiction for the formulation and in implementation of energy policies at multilateral financial and developmental institutions. 
you know, Treasury shouldn't be tasked with formulating energy policy uh, internationally. Treasury doesn't have the technical expertise and the knowledge to make a decision on the use of energy resources. So did we get a bureau that ensures the U.S. government agencies working on the exact same issues in international energy and would avoid duplicating efforts on other parts of government? No. Perfect example of other agencies with overlapping responsibilities and conflicting roles is the Department of Energy. It's unclear how the State Department's Bureau of Energy Resources differs from the Department of Energy's Office of Policy and International Affairs. The Office of Policy and International Affairs, the Department of Energy, works with countries across the world in the development and implementation of national and international energy policy strategies and objectives. It was headed by an Assistant Secretary of Energy, 103 staff in 2013. So the Inspector General's report from last month identified, reported the problems between the various agencies. This is the Inspector General. It said half of ENR's staff with, uh, with uh, with substantive portfolios reported problems in the Bureau's relationship with the Department of Energy, including competing or overlapping missions, inadequate communication and coordination, tense interpersonal relationships. But that's what we're asked to be doing in terms of a confirmation today. The Office of Inspector General's report also discussed the actual reported impacts of the failed coordination, the overlapping responsibilities, and the conflicting efforts. The report said, Personnel in some U.S. embassies told OIG inspectors that inconsistent coordination between ENR and the Department of Energy has on occasion generated problems overseas for missions trying to promulgate a single U.S. energy message to foreign governments. The, OIG, the, the inspector general goes on to say, you know, this is a serious problem. The United States is unable to effectively communicate a unified energy messages to countries across the globe because of the problems I've outlined today. So I think the Senate shouldn't confirm the first assistant secretary for this bureau, which wasn't approved, without the first dealing with the duplication, the redundancies, the confusing lines of authorities on international energy policy. And that's what the Inspector General's report to me is all about. There's no clear delineation of responsibilities and authorities, only a maze of Washington, D.C. bureaucracy that creates international confusion for congressional committees who are responsible for reviewing and conducting oversight of the executive branch of government. And to me, Mr. Chairman, until these problems are addressed, I'm going to continue to oppose any person being nominated to be the first assist Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Energy Resources. And I urge my colleagues to also oppose the current nominee, and therefore I'll call for a roll call vote. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, well, first of all, I want to thank you for the way that you've uh, dealt with all of us on this. I think you've made it known from the very beginning your concerns. Um, my route in dealing with this will be for us to uh, pass a State Department authorization that fixed all of those things. And I think you agree that that would be a productive route to take. Um, and I hope that over the process of the next period of time, we'll figure out a way to more fully define how this department should work. Um, personally, I think it is important for the State Department to have a, an energy strategy. I think it's one of the most important tools of diplomacy, but also ensuring that we can create environments, especially in, in Eastern Europe and other places, that are conducive to them being able to be independent. So I've met with Hamas. Uh, I'm very impressed with him. Um, I feel like the plans that uh, he's working on relative to Europe are very important to us and our relationship there, and therefore I'm going to vote to support him. I know there will be members of the committee that will not do that. 
But I do want to say that uh, I'm in 100% agreement with uh, the great senator from Wyoming that certainly this committee should use its role in authorizing to make sure that this department functions in a much more satisfactory way. And I appreciate him bringing up the fallacies and the problems that are taking place there now. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, first, I, I concur in your comments, and I, I do think a State Department authorization bill could be extremely helpful here. And I think I was listening uh, to my colleague, Senator Brasso, and a lot of what he said I agree with, and then I thought he would then support having a confirmed assistant secretary in the State Department so that we could have more accountability for uh, 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 international policies dealing with these issues. Because when you're dealing with the Department of Energy, you're dealing with the Treasury, you need the voice uh, in the State Department to, to coordinate these policies. So I, and then you said, and I want to agree with also, that uh, the nominee is well qualified or you had no complaints with the nominee. I just want people to know this is one of the key players in getting the international community to honor the um, Iranian uh, sanction regime. Uh, he's uh, well respected among the fossil fuel industry. He's a person, I hope he's well uh, qualified to take on the challenges that Senator Brasso talked about. So we have, we have the right person. And lastly, let me point out, it was uh, this committee, Senator Lugar, in 2007 uh, that in the energy bill recommended the special envoy. So this is really our, uh, this was authorized by Congress, and now it's important to have a person who's going to be accountable to deal with the issues that Senator Brasso has talked about, and I would urge my colleagues uh, to vote for confirmation. Senator Shaheen. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I don't want to speak to the Bureau of Energy Affairs, which or energy resources, but I do want to speak to the efforts of Mr. Hochstein because I, I think he's done a lot of things, but particularly in Europe, um, where I'm the ranking member, I think his efforts have been very important to counter uh, Russia's influence through energy. Mm -hmm. He has worked very hard to cut off the Nordstrom II pipeline, which would, is Russia's efforts to cut off Ukraine for as a transit point for Russian gas. He's worked with Greece and Bulgaria on their gas interconnector so that they have access to non-Russian supplies of energy. He's worked with Ukraine to try and uh, reform their energy sector and to develop um, policies that would give them an alternative to Russian uh, oil and gas. And he's also been instrumental in the creation of energy-specific sanctions on Russia after it invaded Ukraine. So those are just some of the things in Europe. And as we think about the challenges from Russia, I think it's, as you pointed out, Mr. Chairman, very important to have an energy strategy in Europe and to have someone who can help coordinate that. Thank you. I, I, I do think it's central to our efforts in that part of the world, Senator Perdue. Mr. Chairman, briefly, I just want to speak to the, the question uh, that I raised the other day, and that is, um, this is another example of, of something that obviously, when you look at it in an ideal world, we would need that coordinated effort, as the ranking member suggests. Here's my observation. Uh, from 1992 to 2000, the State Department spent on average about $20 billion running everything that we had, USAID and everything, including international operations. Under President Bush, it went up to about an average of about 30. It grew from 20 to 40 billion. Under the last seven years, with increased demand in Iraq and Afghanistan, granted, but the question is, we've grown to $54 billion in the State Department, including $34 billion in USAID. So my question is not about the individual. It's not about whether this ideally should be done. It's a question, can we afford it? My answer is no. We cannot afford it when every dollar we're spending at the State Department is technically borrowed today. 
Thank you. Well, thank you. And again, um, uh, to me, it warrants uh, us doing an excellent job on a State Department authorization to make sure that appropriate priorities are dealt with. I will say again, with, with respect, uh, I cannot imagine how having an energy strategy relative to especially what Russia is doing at present and some of the issues that will occur in the Middle East is not something that's centrally important to the State Department. But, uh, Senator. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I just want to speak briefly in favor of Mr. Hoxine's nomination. Um, uh, Senator Perdue raises a question that often gets talked about in this committee and on the floor of the Senate as to whether we can afford it. Let's just remember that though we have seen an expansion of that budget, we still rank in the lower quartile of OECD nations in terms of the percentage of our GDP that we dedicate to an international affairs uh, budget. And Russia is dramatically ramping up the subsidies uh, and outright graft and intimidation that they use in order to broaden their energy reach throughout Europe. Um, Senator Shaheen is right uh, that Mr. Hochstein and that bureau have been absolutely integral, um, not just to the work currently uh, to try to push back on Nord Stream, but on the successful effort to convince our allies in Europe to reject the South Stream pipeline, which would have been an end around Ukraine to bring Russian gas and Russian energy into Central uh, and Western Europe. I just encourage anyone on this committee who hasn't received a brief from Mr. Hochstein and from this department to do so. I think in a very short amount of time, you will realize the tremendous value that this office brings to some very important energy independence projects, particularly in Eastern and Southern Europe. Uh, he's done a fantastic job uh, during the time that he's been in the position. Um, and I think as to Senator Brasso's critique of the overlapping sets of responsibilities, um, you're spot on. But I worry that we try to have it both ways. We haven't done a State Department authorization in a decade, and then we complain about the anachronistic ways in which the department is organized. Hopefully we can solve that problem this year, get a great person in that position, get a reformed set of responsibilities, uh, and, uh, and gain some consensus on this committee at the end of that process. Senator Brasso. Well, let me concur with uh, the fine job that, that he has done, which was mentioned by uh, my Democratic colleagues. You know, when, when Carlos Pasquale was nominated for this position, and Senator Luger, a former member of this committee, had come to me about that, I had the same objection. So this has yeah. been a long-standing issue. The, the issue of, of the, the current job being done, uh, you know, Mr. Hochstein is serving in the role as the coordinator currently for international energy affairs. In 2007, as you say, Congress passed a bipartisan legislation congressionally authorizing this position of coordinator at the Department of State to handle these energy issues and foreign policy. The coordinator reports directly to the Secretary of State, unlike the Assistant Secretary reports to the Under Secretary of State. Um, and so Mr. Hochstein is able to carry out the work on these issues, dealing with energy policy, the Department of State, under the current coordinator position that he has and is doing a fine job in, and people point to that. So there is really no delay or impact on his ability to do this excellent job. The real obstacle is being able to advocate a single U.S. energy message to foreign governments, uh, and that is the problem and the reason I raised this today with regard to the Office of Inspector General's report. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, I call thank for you for the program. manner in which you've raised it and the consistency with which you've shown on this issue. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, there's no question that energy is central to a huge portion of our international um, policy. It's, it's, it's at the heart of a lot of it, from Libya 
to Iraq, to Iran, energy, 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 just keep going right down the line. That's just the reality of the world in which we live. Um, and, and Senator Barrasso, you know, talks about uh, this part of the agency that has been dissected for inadequate um, coordination. And uh, one of the reasons is that there's never been a confirmed assistant secretary for energy, never. So what we're talking about here is confirming someone who would have the responsibility for doing that coordination. And that's all we're talking about, the, the, the individual separate sub-issues clearly are going to have to be debated as part of an authorization, as part of any other activity that we might engage in. But I don't think that the problems that have been identified can be solved at all unless we have a confirmed assistant secretary for energy. <clears throat> so we've never had one. So I think that that's kind of how we should divide it between just is there a management structure and then how well then are the individual issues being dealt with within that uh, sub part of the agency and I think that would be probably a better way of looking at it and as a result Mr. Hochstein's nomination really just fits into the context of making sure that there is a solid management structure there and I would urge his approval. With, uh, with all the business we have, if it's okay, I'd like to move to his nomination. Uh, I do, I know there's going to be a divided vote here. I have a sense how it's going to be, but I, I would, I am uh, sort of uplifted by the fact that I think the, the energy area of the State Department is going to be part of our authorization. My sense is there'll be a, a lot of like-mindedness around making sure that we uh, have an authorization that, that addresses that. So uh, is there a motion to approve, Mr. Sir, and, and a second, uh, all in, and I think there's going to be a roll call vote. So uh, if we will, clerk, let's begin that. No. No by proxy. No by proxy. No. Clerk will report. Oh, aye. So he will move to the floor. I want to thank everybody for the healthy discussion we've had about this. And uh, again, I want to thank Senator Barrasso for the manner in which he's uh, um, discussed this issue with us. And I look forward to, to a good State Department authorization. Next, we'll consider SRES. 388, the International Women's Day resolution with two amendments. Senator Cardin, do you have any comments to make on this? I've already made my comments. Anyone else like to speak to this resolution? Yes, ma'am. Um, Mr. Chairman, I, I want to thank um, the your staff and all of the efforts that have gone into trying to reach an accommodation around this resolution, and it really speaks to 
the challenges that half the world's population faces with respect to domestic and sexual violence, with respect to child marriage, um, with respect to trying to make sure that women have access to schools around the world. Um, and it talks about women reaching their full potential. Um, but I have to say, Mr. Chairman, that I am disappointed that, again, in these discussions, we were not able to talk about the importance of women around the world having access to reproductive health. Because an estimated 225 million women in developing countries have unmet need for modern contraception, and that's the highest in sub-Saharan Africa. And providing greater access to family planning and reproductive health services improves the health of mothers and children it also is one of the best ways to reduce poverty around the world. And it's critical that women are able to access family planning services. Um, each year, about 47,000 women die from complications due to unsafe abortions. And access to and use of effective contraception reduces unintended pregnancies associated with unsafe abortions. So I, I, I just want to point out that if we're, if we're really talking about women being able to reach their full potential and the challenges that women in the developing world face, making sure that they can have access to reproductive health services is one of the most critical needs that women and families have. So um, again, I, I'm pleased with what we were able to agree to in this resolution, but that's one thing we have not been able to agree to that I think um, continues to be an urgent need for women around the world. Thank, thank you, Mr. Thank Chairman. Thank you for your comment. Senator Boxer. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank Senator Shaheen for her leadership. And I just want to say, without rancor in any way, that when you have women on a committee, a couple of women, you ought to think about, just think about putting yourself in our shoes and our perspective. Now, if you believe that abortion should be outlawed, some do, even under the circumstances of rape and incest, uh, then you surely should embrace contraceptives. Surely. And if you went out into the street and just add a, a man in the street, a woman in the street, that's what they would say. More than 90% of the women in this country have used birth control at some point in their life. And as Senator Shaheen says, to deny women the kind of health care we need. The men don't need it in the same way. I think is, is selfish. Because what we're doing is we're forcing the women of the world, or let's just say we're not helping them in what they need most, decent, safe health care. So I will stand with my colleague on this point. I am proud of her for raising this issue. It's not pleasant. But I think it needs to be said. It needs to be said. Don't tell me you're against abortion at the same time you're against birth control. You know? It just is, it's phony. It's phony. That's my thought. I didn't hold back. I was going to, but I'm sorry. <laughs> but but I, I there's a general characteristic I've noticed through the years. You'll soon be so free. That, uh...
you'll soon be free of these words, so bear with me. But I just hope you'll think a little bit more, open up your minds a little bit more, and listen to what Jean uh, has said. I appreciate both of your comments. Any other discussion? I think we're, we live in a world where we get done what we can get done, and today we are uh, certainly moving ahead with this issue, and I thank both of you for your comments and, and contributions. All right, is there any further discussion on this resolution? Apparently not. Uh, is there a motion uh, to approve both managers' amendments by voice vote in block? So move. Is there a second? So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve both, amend both amendments and block. All in favor say aye. aye. All opposed. With that, the ayes have it. The amendments are agreed to. Are there any further amendments? Seeing none, um, I'd like to hear a motion on approving the resolution as it was just amended. So moved. Second. Second. So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve SRS 388 as amended. All in favor say aye. aye. Opposed. With that, the ayes have it. The resolution as amended is agreed to. Thank you. Thank you for your contributions. Our next order of business uh, that I also ask we consider and block by the by voice vote are the remaining resolutions before the committee, SRES 375, SRES 368, SRES 392, SRES 378, SRES 383. Senator Cardin, any comments? I've already commented and I would encourage members to support these resolutions. Are there any other members that would like to speak to these resolutions? Senator Menendez. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I'm strongly supportive of these resolutions, particularly with reference to uh, the resolution that expresses concern over the prosecution and conviction of former President Nasid, as well as the call for due process and freedom from political persecution for all the peoples of the Maldives, and the one on Boris Nimsov. Uh, and uh, I know the chairman has heard me say many times that I believe that a emphasis on human rights and democracy and freedom are incredibly important when they emanate from this committee, the Senate, and the United States of America globally. And that sometimes I worry that we subject those guiding principles to other interests. And I'm glad to see Senator Leahy uh, offering the resolution on President Nassim. I'm glad to see uh, the one on Boris Nimsov. And I just want to uh, take a moment to say there are other places in the world in which the very same things that we cry out for, for ensuring that, in fact, uh, people in the Maldives are going to be free from political persecution for all the people of the Maldives, well, uh, I would like to see the people of Cuba be free from all of the political persecution that they have suffered for so long. I would like to see an international investigation, as we call for in Boris Nimsov, for Oswaldo Paya. Oswaldo Paya was a peaceful activist in Cuba who, under the Cuban constitution as it exists, was collecting signatures and a petition to petition the government of Cuba to create changes and he was assassinated inside of Cuba. So I bring up this moment because uh, as someone who is universally passionate about these issues, I would like to invoke the passion of my colleagues uh, who may disagree with uh, our policy or maybe agree now with the present policy on Cuba to speak out about human rights and democracy in Cuba, to speak out as strongly as they do in other parts of the world 
about the people in Cuba who are languishing every day, trying to create peaceful change in their country. The greatest repression we have seen, if one can imagine in this, in the last several months, over 1,400 Cubans have been arrested. The women in white, every Sunday, who march to church dressed in white with a gladiola to talk about, in essence, in a peaceful protest, about their sons and daughters and husbands who are arrested by the Castro regime. And we say nothing. And we say nothing. So I want to take this moment to hopefully prick the conscience of my colleagues uh, who I would hope would be as vigorous in their advocacy for human rights and democracy in Cuba as I admire them in other parts of the world. And I, I strongly support the resolution. I appreciate your strong and consistent uh, voice on uh, human rights around the world. And, and uh, I think we have an opportunity with some of the changes that have been put forth by the administration to see if the Castro administration will begin to respect human rights in a different way, and, and uh, we'll see what occurs in that regard. Mr. Chairman, I hope 1,400 arrests in two months isn't uh, the beginning of what uh, is changed I, for the better. You know? I understand. Any other? Uh, Senator Coons. I'll be very brief, Mr. Chairman. If I might, first, I'd like to be added as the co-sponsor of all these uh, resolutions, and I just want to thank Senator Perdue uh, for his leadership on Resolution 383. I think it's important that we continue to emphasize the enduring economic ties and uh, entrepreneurial ties between the United States and Israel. And the Byrd Foundation is a great example of that. And I'd like to thank you uh, and Ranking Member Cardin uh, for your leadership in bringing forward 1252, the Global Food Security Act, uh, for authorizing Feed the Future. And as Senator Cardin referenced, at a time of a great drought and uh, challenges in Ethiopia, uh, to continue to invest in finding um, both uh, efficient and effective ways to deliver food aid through a variety of pathways. It's been great to work with you on this, and I'm pleased we're moving forward today. Thank you. Mr. Chairman? Yes, sir. Senator uh, I had the privilege of, uh, on a recent trip, of, of meeting Vladimir um, Karamurza, that was also uh, involved. He's a Russian uh, opposition leader as well. I was very moved by that, so I'd like to very definitely be uh, added as a co-sponsor on SRES uh, 378. I'd also like to speak to 383 and thank uh, Senator Coons uh, for his leadership as a co-sponsor of this bill uh, to encourage U.S. to facilitate and grow our economic relationship with Israel. Uh, some 250,000 high-paying jobs are supported by that relationship. Uh, Israel today uh, provides more direct foreign investment than Russia, China, and even India. So I encourage the uh, committee to, to uh, vote aye on this bill. Thank you. Any other comments? Before we vote, I want to personally thank uh, Trey Hicks in our office, who is, has been a saint, if you will, in trying to work through these issues of global food security. And, and uh, we still have a lot of work to do. But uh, I, I just have to tell you, I, the patience he has shown in working through the issues that we've had to deal with here is, are remarkable. And yet, he's been persistent. And I just want to thank him. Um, Mr. Chairman, can I add an amen yeah. to that? Thank you. Any, Senator Isaacs, and did you make a remark on global food security? Sure. I just want to thank you for adding yourself as a co-sponsor today. I want to thank Senator Kuhn, Senator Casey, Senator Rubio, the others that have helped us. Food security is critical. One in eight people around the world go to sleep in hunger. Stunning is a major problem around the world. It's in the interest of the United States national security for people to not be hungry and be self-sufficient. This bill coordinates all the programs of U.S. assistance to ensure we meet the goals of the United States, but we work people from dependence to self-sufficiency around the world. So food security is no longer an issue, and I would appreciate everybody's support. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. So, uh, uh, and appreciate your tremendous contributions in that area and all the work you've done in Africa in general. So, I think we got a little ahead of ourselves, uh, thanks to me. Um, are there any, uh, I guess the, we want to, do we have a motion to approve these resolutions? In block, yes. In block. So moved. Second. Is there a second? Second. All in favor, say aye. Aye. All opposed, the ayes have it. With uh, the resolutions are agreed to. Next, we'll consider uh, Senate Bill 1252, the Global Food Security Act of 2015. Senator Cardin, any additional comments? No. Uh, again, I strongly support this and thank all those who were involved. Anyone else? Thank you. For no further discussion, I'll entertain a motion to consider the substitute amendment by voice vote. So moved. Is there a second? Second. So moved and seconded. Question is on the motion to approve the substitute amendment. All in favor say aye. Aye. All opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The substitute amendment is agreed to. Are there any further amendments? Hearing none, there's a motion. Is there a motion to approve the legislation as amended? So moved. Is there a second? second. Thank you. So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve Senate Bill 1252 as amended. All in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed. With that, the ayes have it. The legislation is amended and agreed to, and that completes the committee's business. I ask unanimous consent that staff be authorized to make technical and conforming changes without objection. So ordered. And with that, without objection, the committee will stand adjourned. And we will begin a hearing of the nominees if they still wish to serve. If y'all would come in. Thank you. Okay. No, 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 thank you. Thank you very Absolutely, yes, sir. Thank you. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. The, the committee will consider seven nominations. First on our panel, we have Ms. Christine Elder, a career member of the Senior Foreign Service class of counselor to be ambassador to Liberia. Ms. Elder is currently director of the Office of Southern African Affairs in the Bureau of African Affairs at the Department of State, a position she has held since 2013. Previous, previously, Ms. Elder served as deputy chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Mozambique from 2010 to 2013, and that as Strategic Planning Officer in the Bureau of International Programs from 2007 to 2010. Thank you so much for your service. We have Mr. David Harden. He's a nominee for Assistant Administrator for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance for USAID. He is a career member of the Foreign Service, Class of Minister Counselor, and currently serves as Mission Director at USAID Mission in the West Bank and Gaza, a position he's held since 2013. Prior to this, he was Deputy Mission Director at USAID Mission in Iraq from 2012 to 2013 and Senior Advisor to the Special Envoy for the Middle East Peace, for Middle East Peace from 2009 to 2012. 
Mr. Hardin also served as Senior Development Advisor in Libya in 2011. Thank you so much. Next, we have Ms. Elizabeth Richard to be Ambassador to Lebanon. Ms. Richard, a career member of the Foreign Service, class of Minister Counselor, is the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs at Department of State, a position she has held since 2013. Previously, Ms. Richard served as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Yemen from 2010 to 2013, Border Coordinator at the U.S. Embassy in Pakistan from 2008 to 2010, and as Director for Counter-Narcotics, Law Enforcement, and Rule of Law Programs at the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan from 2006 to 2007. Thank you so much. And lastly, we have Mr. Stephen Swartz, a career member of the Foreign Service, a class of counselor, currently serves as Director of the Office of Australia, New Zealand, and Pacific Island Affairs in the Department of State, a position he has held since August 2015. Previously, Mr. Swartz served as Director of the Office of Western African Affairs from 2013 to 2015, Deputy Chief of Mission at U.S. Embassy in Zambia from 2010 to 2013, and Deputy Director of the Office of Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands from 2008 to 2010. Y'all are all very accomplished and your resumes are very long. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> thank you all for being here. Um, I want to, I don't know if you want to make any opening comments uh, before Mr. they. Mr. Chairman, I just wanted to welcome not only the four nominees, but also the second panel of three nominees. Thank you. Each one of you has served your nation in an extraordinary way in the career of public service. And we thank you and your families, because we know it's a, it's a family sacrifice, and we particularly appreciate your willingness to continue to serve our country in critically important positions. I'm going to put my full statement in the record so we can go right to the hearing. But, Mr. Chairman, I need to point out that Mr. Hardin and Mr. Schwartz should be given special attention since they're from Maryland. As with so many of the folks in State Department, they are from Maryland. We welcome you, and we certainly do. Uh, <laughs> We certainly do uh, thank all of the families in particular for being here and for Mr. the support. Uh, Mr. Chairman? Yes. Can I just say, I've got to go to another hearing, but I wanted to say how much I appreciated meeting with Ms. Elder and Mr. Schwartz uh, in my office earlier, and they're going to do great. Uh, we, uh, in Africa, um, people tend to go to one country and go to another and go to another, and they're all Africa hands, and uh, appreciate uh, their, their families and their sacrifice that they've made as well. And uh, I'm just glad that they're here and glad that we're so well represented on that continent. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you for your tremendous efforts uh, in the continent of Africa. Yes, sir, Senator Isaacson. I just want to say I couldn't have said it better than Senator Flake did. I have met with the nominees as well. They're outstanding citizens of our country. And to go to the countries they're going to and be the face of America where they are, we're very lucky to have people willing to sacrifice and do it. I commend all of you for your commitment to the country. Thank you. Thank you. It, it appears you're not going to have a lot of questions. <laughs> so uh, we uh, thank you, Senator Isaacson. And uh, with that, if, uh, if we could begin testimony with um, Ms. Elber. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ranking Member Cardin and members of the committee, it's truly an honor to be here today as the nominee to represent the United States in Liberia. 
I'm grateful for the confidence of the Secretary and the President in this nomination and deeply appreciative of the support, indeed, of my family, my friends, and my colleagues. I'd especially like to thank my husband, uh, Paul Hughes, who was himself a Foreign Service officer and grew up in the Foreign Service. He's here with his sister, uh, Alice Hughes, and her husband, Dr. John Sheritz. Not here, but very much in our hearts are my stepchildren, Ellie and Christopher, in Washington State in school, and my brother in Ohio and parents in Kentucky. Uh, Mr. Chairman, the United States and Liberia do share a deep historical bond, and if confirmed, I will deepen that partnership uh, as Liberia continues to recover from Ebola, to restructure its security sector, strengthen its democracy, and expand economic growth and opportunity. It wasn't long ago that Liberia and its neighbors were mired in the Ebola crisis. Peace, hard won through daily determination, after a devastating civil war was threatened. We harnessed the full force of the U.S. government, bringing together the Departments of Defense and State, USAID, CDC, and others. Uh, we sent over 3,000 U.S. troops to set up treatment centers and to help train new healthcare workers to replace hundreds who had died trying to save others. Our assistance was over $500 million. And this was all in support of Liberia's own efforts. If confirmed, I will lead our embassy team, working together with Liberians on the global health security agenda to prevent, detect, and respond to outbreaks so that they don't become epidemics. The $257 million MCC compact will boost Liberia's participation in Power Africa, where only 2% of the population has access to electricity. This project will quadruple uh, power generation. We remain Liberia's closest partner on national reconstruction. We've invested more than $2 billion since the end of the Civil War in 2003. And of that, over $350 million went to help rebuild their security sector. And the growing capabilities and competence of their forces in that sector is reflected in the UN Security Council's authorization for the further reduction of the UNMIL mandate uh, to a residual force as they conclude their peacekeeping uh, mandate this year. In recovery, the Liberian government is rightfully focused on job creation, and President Sirleaf understands the importance of battling corruption and also in advancing reforms to attract foreign investment. If confirmed, I'll advance U.S. interests to the benefit of both of our economies. I'll ensure that our assistance is wisely spent and well-coordinated. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, Liberian people want to lift themselves up, and they are deeply grateful for our counsel and our support. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here, and I welcome your questions. Well, we thank you very much, and uh, I know we abbreviated our opening comments. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, we just didn't give them to give you time to be here and us finish this uh, this uh, meeting, but we thank you all again for being here in your service. Mr. Hardin. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you today as the nominee for the Assistant Administrator for the Bureau of Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance at the United States Agency for International Development. We call it DACHA. If confirmed, I look forward to working alongside the nearly 900 men and women of DACHA who seek to end extreme poverty, promote resilient, 
democratic society and to promote resilient democratic societies. I particularly want to thank my friend, colleague, and mentor, Tom Stahl, for his leadership of Dacha over the past 18 months. My parents are here today, uh, and my own family is watching this hearing from afar. My wife, Sharon, is at the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv. Tyler, my son, is at a tech startup in San Francisco. Ryan is at the U.S. Air Force Academy, and Waverly is at Bowdoin College. We are a, family, a foreign service family, and like thousands of others, we have represented America in some of the toughest places on earth. In 1999, Sharon and I packed up our preschoolers and moved to Bangladesh, and we've been overseas ever since. My family's experience living in crisis zones has forged my understanding of the complex challenges in the world today and the importance of a robust American engagement. I believe USAID's DACHA Bureau represents the best of America. Its offices of US Foreign Disaster Assistance and Food for Peace are the first responders in global crises. They feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, comfort the sick, and shelter the displaced. DACHA also assists nations with transition and works to address the root causes of instability. The Office of Transition Initiatives and Conflict Management and Mitigation seek to improve delivery of basic services, give voice to the marginalized, and reduce the risk of violence. DACHA teams continually analyze risk, whether a famine, mass atrocities, communicable disease, or flooding, in order to build the resilience in our partner nations. The Center of Excellence on Democracy, Human Rights, and Governance helps nations build effective institutions and robust civil societies so they can provide security and justice, economic opportunity, and political freedom for their people. The Office of American Schools and Hospitals Abroad supports world-class global education and health facilities and also promotes American values. If confirmed, I look forward to working with Congress on four key areas. First, I will ensure DACHA is at peak operational capacity to be prepared for the crises ahead. Second, I will make certain our international food assistance remains cutting edge, innovative, and reaches most of the, the most people in need. Third, I will work to expand funding for democracy, human rights, and governance because we know these crises are in large part due to failed governance and undemocratic institutions. And finally, I look forward to working with my interagency and international colleagues to envision our world in 2025 and to advance a strategy to address regional instability and fragility. If confirmed, I will lead with integrity, work for results, and be strictly accountable for US taxpayer dollars. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Ms. Richard. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Ranking Member Cardin. And I'd especially like to thank the Senator from Virginia. Not all of us in the State Department are from Maryland. Some of us are from Virginia. Thank you for staying, sir. Yeah. I'm honored by President Obama's decision to nominate me to be ambassador to Lebanon. I, if confirmed, I look forward to working with you to achieve the very important uh, policy objectives we have there. Over my 30 years in the Foreign Service, I have served in a number of challenging posts, as you noted, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Yemen. And in those places, I have seen firsthand what a huge difference the United States can make when it leads. The effects of the crises now raging across the Middle East make our leadership more important than ever. 
The Middle East is undergoing a period of unprecedented instability. But against this backdrop, the resilience of the Lebanese people is remarkable. Lebanon faces three major challenges, the conflict in Syria, an ongoing governance crisis, and the activities of Hezbollah, a terrorist organization that puts its own interests and the interests of its benefactors and patrons ahead of those of the Lebanese people. Our partnership with the country's legitimate state institutions and its people is essential in helping Lebanon address these challenges. Mr. Chairman, I'm really struck by the incredible generosity of Lebanon in welcoming more than a million Syrian refugees. And I am very, very proud of the generosity of the American people as well. Our assistance to Syrian refugees and the communities that host them <clears throat> pardon me, has eased this burden. However, extremist groups like ISIL and al-Nusra continue to pose a grave threat to Lebanon and to US interests in the region. With the generous support of Congress, we are helping Lebanon's security in institutions in their fight against extremism. Effective security must be buttressed by effective political leadership, however. <clears throat> and as you know, Lebanon has been without a president for almost two years now. It is time for the country to elect a president and to restore a functioning cabinet and parliament. As for Hezbollah, its ongoing intervention in Syria to prop up the Assad regime was undertaken without the consent of the Lebanese people. The administration strongly supported the Hezbollah International Financing Prevention Act passed by the Congress just last December. Our shared goal is to dismantle Hezbollah's international financial network while supporting at the same time the legitimate Lebanese banking and other institutions. If confirmed, I will do all I can to expand our anti-money laundering and counterterrorism finance cooperation with Lebanon. Most importantly, Mr. Chairman, I want to remember that Lebanon is hallowed ground for US diplomats and for our military colleagues as well. The tragic bombings of the Marine Barracks and the US Embassy in Beirut in 1983 will never be forgotten. If confirmed, my highest priority will be the safety and security of all Americans in Lebanon. There is really no job more important to me than that. So with that, Mr. Chairman, members, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today and look forward to your questions. Thank you for your testimony. Mr. Schwartz. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, it is an honor to appear before you today to be considered for the position of United States Ambassador to the Federal Republic of Somalia. I am sincerely grateful to President Obama and Secretary Kerry for the confidence they have shown in me through this nomination. Mr. Chairman, please allow me to introduce my family. With me here today are my wife, Christy Cook, and our two children, Hannah and Jonas. Very good. <laughs> I thank each of them for their support uh, and sacrifice. In addition, I would like to pay tribute to my father, Robert, who uh, fell ill and was able to, unable to travel here for the hearing, uh, and to my late mother, Carol. Their influence continues to shape and motivate me every day. Mr. Chairman, the people of Somalia are regaining control of their country, and intensified U.S. engagement is vital to their success and to ours. With measured but real progress, Somalia is no longer a failed state, but a fragile, recovering country with promise. Somalia's vibrant diaspora members are making important contributions to this renewal. Last May, Secretary Kerry became the first Secretary of State to visit Somalia. While there, he announced that planning had begun to reestablish U.S. diplomatic premises in Mogadishu. 
If confirmed, fulfilling that commitment will be one of my top priorities with the safety and security of U.S. government personnel always foremost among my considerations. Mr. Chairman, we are working with Somalis and international partners on security, building governance institutions, and providing relief and development. For security, our top priority is to degrade al-Shabaab, an al-Qaeda affiliate. We are achieving this goal primarily by supporting the African Union mission in Somalia, also known as AMISOM, and building the capacity of the Somali military and police. Security gains have created space for political developments, as outlined in Somalia's Vision 2016. In the coming months, Somalis plan to continue developing a new constitution, complete the formation of regional administrations, and agree on rules governing the electoral process. To grow the economy and build capacity, the United States supports the New Deal Compact as the basis of a strong Somali-led development partnership. Much more progress is needed, however, if Somalis are to enjoy a better future. More than 20 years of conflict have uprooted 2 million Somalis, both in and outside the country. Today, more than 700,000 Somalis are estimated to be acutely malnourished, many of them children. Mr. Chairman, Somalia has many challenges, but it is moving in the right direction and can count on the United States as a full partner. My nomination reflects our deepening relationship with the country and its people and our faith that better times are ahead. If confirmed, it will be my honor to lead our mission as the first United States ambassador to Somalia in over 25 years. I thank you. Well, thank you all. We are, are very fortunate to have people of your caliber that in foreign service and do the things that you do and the sacrifices that you've made on behalf of our country for many, many years. We, uh, I'm gonna defer on oral questions. I will give written questions. I hope that doesn't disappoint you. I know you all prep for this meeting. Um, I think Senator Cardin may be doing the same thing. Um, I'll let him speak to his own, uh, but I'm gonna defer and, and let, because of the length of this meeting uh, and, and the fact that we have another panel, I'm gonna do mine in writing. But again, your testimony is very good. We're very fortunate to have people again of your caliber and we thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I just really want to underscore what the chairman said. The nomination process is a very important process in the Senate. Confirmations we take very, very seriously. A good deal of work is done before the hearings and going through the resumes and records of those who are nominated by the president. We had a relatively easy task with the panel before us and the next panel because of your career of service to our country is incredible. And we thank you very much for everything you've done to help America. Uh, we will be asking questions for the record. I want to make that clear because I do want, it gives us a chance also to emphasize areas of major concern. So I'm going to just a quote from Mr. Hardin because in his statement he covered an issue that I will be talking to each one of you about in your positions and that is I look forward to working with this committee to expand funding for democracy, human rights and governance. Crisis we face today are in large part a result of failed governments and under democratic institutions. I will also tighten the analytical link between our work in democracy, human rights, and governance and its impact on political freedom, economic opportunity, and social inclusion. Democracies are more resilient to disasters and typically do not go to war with each other. Democracies, human rights, and governance must be at the center of our development agenda if we're going to get ahead of crisis and end extreme poverty. 
Uh, the questions I'm going to be asking all the nominees, including the second panel, is what you have done to advance human rights in your career and how you intend to use the position, if confirmed, to advance our ideals. America's strength is in its, its, in, in its values. And although we do have the strongest military in the world, there's no question about that, and we have a very strong commitment to diplomacy and development assistance, it's in promoting these values that give America its strength and, this, and the stability globally. And we're going to be asking you to make a commitment to work with this committee to advance those good governance issues in the countries. And the countries that are represented in the three ambassador nominees here all are challenged, and we, we need to do a, a more effective job using uh, your diplomatic skills. And in the next panel, we have countries also that we can do better. So I, I look forward to your response, but more importantly, I look forward to working with you to advance America's values so we can get world stability. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses. Um, I can't help but notice that four of the seven on these two panels are Virginians. Um, and you can see, Mr. Chair, why I fought so hard to be on this committee. I see more Virginians here than if I was down in Richmond strolling around yeah. in my neighborhood. Um, yeah. But uh, the Virginia connection with the State Department, nine secretaries of state, and then so many State Department personnel, Foreign Service personnel live in the Commonwealth is something that we really cherish. And it's one of the reasons why Virginians care a lot about these issues. These foreign relations issues are not particularly foreign in a state where one out of nine Virginians was born in another country. And they care deeply about where they're from and they care deeply about the work that you do. I, I, am, I also want to thank Mr. Hardin. He schlepped me around the West Bank twice. And I know in the life of a Foreign Service professional, it's always good to have a CODEL, but the best day is the day that they leave. And, uh, <laughs> but you're, you're a good sport. Um, I want to focus on Lebanon. Ms. Richard, I, I'm so glad you pointed out that the Lebanese embassy, the U.S. Embassy in Beirut is hallowed ground. Um, anybody who wonders about the work that we do and how hard it is, or anybody who wonders about the sacrifice that people like y'all make, they need to go to the U.S. Embassy in Beirut. Um, Senator King and I served together on the Armed Services Committee, and we were there in February of 2014. And uh, we walked down on a morning and we went to the memorial there for the victims of the two bombings, the embassy bombing in 1983 and the embassy annex bombing in 1984, as well as a memorial to the Marines who were killed in the barracks bombing and other State Department and U.S. personnel who were killed in the years to follow during the war. And uh, it is a very, very sobering thing to see the number of embassy personnel, both U.S. born and Lebanese, who were killed, and, and it makes the risk so palpable. We then went upstairs at that weird hotel that they have on the embassy grounds, and in the middle of a meeting, we were getting ready to go downtown to meet with President Suleiman. We heard an explosion. We walked out on the balcony. We could look into downtown Beirut and see the smoke coming up from a suicide bomb that had been detonated in front of an Iranian cultural center. Our experience, Angus and I were sure our meetings were going to get canceled. The embassy personnel, they're used to dealing with it. The Lebanese president used to dealing with it. And just quickly for my colleagues, we, we went ahead and did the meeting. And when we were with President Suleiman, who at that point was two months from the end of his term, he was taking calls from everybody trying to deal with the crisis while he was meeting with us. And at one point he just looked up and said, it wasn't like he was looking at us, but he just said, I think this is our fault. And, we, and Angus and I didn't know what he meant. And so we said, what do you mean this is your fault? He said, I think it's Christian's fault. And he said, we could have played the role of peacemaker and bridge builder, but instead what we've done is we've played the role of trying to 
be with whoever was up at whatever point in time. Now, a statement that's made like that in the heat of emotion, I'm a Catholic, I blame myself for everything too, so I mean, I, don't, I didn't necessarily take it as the, a, a completely accurate description of the reality, but it was, it was a, a cri de coeur, really, of despair and a tough circumstance. And yet here we are, we're two years later, and there's not a president. We've been two years without a president. We had Lebanese parliamentarians visit us two weeks ago, Senator Shaheen and I visited with them, and they really you know, couldn't see a particular path forward that they could describe to us. And I have to believe that in any nation, much less one that is under the midst of a refugee crisis where now one in four of the population of the country are refugees from Syria, in any nation, the lack of a president would be a challenging governance question in this nation. It's gotta be just devastating. So. What can we do, mindful of the notion that these nations have to figure out their own internal politics themselves, but what, what can we do? We invest a lot in the Lebanese Armed Forces through security cooperation. They deeply appreciate that. We, we saw that in action. But what can we do to help them move to a chapter where they're not going to be gridlocked while they're in the midst of such difficulty? Well, thanks, Senator, and thank, thank you really for your interest in Lebanon. It's such an important part of the region. Um, at the end of the day, you're exactly right, the Lebanese have to solve this problem. But we can do a lot, I think, in encouraging them and in, in, in forcing them to face up to the fact that at the end of the day, what will save Lebanon are institutions and not personal relationships and individuals. Um, the cabinet does meet from time to time, and they met in November to pass some very important anti-money laundering law. So they, they are able to focus and, and realize things that are in their national interest. But you're right, we must do a lot more to encourage them and to work with others who have influence in Lebanon. We are not the only ones, Saudis and others, to help uh, focus the Lebanese leadership on the need for restoration of the institutions. The other thing I'd like you to comment on, the parliamentarians were expressing the concern that they feel like they're victims in a big proxy war uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And, the, and you know, there's an old-fashioned American phrase, they didn't use it, but I've, I've, I've heard it before, when the elephants fight, the fleas get trampled. And they kind of feel like there's a proxy war that's going on, and they're just kind of like the collateral damage sometimes. How diplomatically can we deal with that issue? I, kn I know we have Saudi Arabia and Iran at the table with respect to the ceasefire discussions in Syria. Is there anything we can do with respect to promoting stability in Lebanon that we should be asking while they're there at the table on the Syrian issue, which is so connected to Lebanon that we should be asking of them? Uh, yes, Senator, you're absolutely right. And, and we do have this opportunity in the context of Syria. We have talked about this with both the Saudis, with the Iranians, and with others in the region about the need to separate Lebanon from the real issues at hand in Syria. And I, uh, I know that Secretary Kerry and others continue to, to make that point of the importance of separating Lebanon out. Um, at the same time, we are talking with Saudi Arabia even now uh, about this issue of withdrawing support to the Lebanese Armed Forces and the Internal Security Services. Um, because as, as I understand, Saudi Arabia has recently delayed indefinitely about $3 billion worth of military support for the Lebanese Armed Forces. 
Yes, sir. Yeah. And our point to them is that if, if, the, if the ultimate objective here is to limit the ability of Hezbollah to do what it's doing, the solution is to invest in Lebanese institutions and not to withdraw support from them at this critical time. What is your perception on the Lebanese institution side? This will be my final question. What's your perception of the degree to which the Lebanese armed forces are viewed as a um, inclusive um, body that isn't too slanted toward one of the power factions or another? Both the Lebanese Armed Forces, Senator, and the Internal Security Force, which is the police, are, are seen to be extremely professional um, and, and not very much um, polluted, let's say, by some of the, the worst parts of the interconfessional fighting. Mm -hmm. Very professional, very dedicated and loyal to the government. And we have high confidence in both institutions, and that's why we continue to work with them. Great. Well, thank you so much, and thanks to all the witnesses, and I have great respect for the service you provide. Well, thank you, and I, uh, having been to Lebanon, and certainly with the existing situation uh, that is there and the resilience of these people and in light of what is occurring, it's amazing. I appreciate your emphasis not to in any way diminish the roles that the other three are going to play. We thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, we hope that you'll respond to our written questions promptly. I know that you will. And again, uh, we thank you for your commitment uh, to our country and to what you do on our behalf. And with that, uh, with no fireworks, um, you are welcome to leave, or if you wish to provide some, we'll begin, we'll respond. But otherwise, uh, uh, if you all will, please, uh, please, uh, you're dismissed. Thank you. Next, we'll move to the second panel. Yes, yes, I'll see your wife. Are you coming? You're in Israel? I'll see you there next week. That's right. Yeah. Great, thank you very much. Okay. State, yeah. they call her Kiderling. Kiderling. So you don't have to say that. Kiderling. Can't hold a job. Thank you. My problem with Bob is when I'm Okay, we'll begin with introductions, and we thank all of you for being here. Uh, Ms. Kelly, Kelly Keiterling, a career member of the Foreign Service, class of Minister Counselor, is Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs at the Department of State, position she has held since 2013. Ms. Keiterling served as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Venezuela from 2011 to 2013. Strategic Language Issues Coordinator in the Bureau of Human Services in 2010, 
and Chief of Staff in the Office of Iraq Affairs from 20, 2009 to 2010. Thank you so much for being here. Next, we have Mr. Mark Sobel to be U.S. Executive Director of the International Monetary Fund for a term of two years. Mr. Sobel is a Deputy Assistant Secretary for the International Monetary and Financial Policy at the U.S. Department of Treasury. Mr. Sobel has worked for the U.S. Department of Treasury since 1978 in a variety of positions, having served in his current position since 2000. We welcome you here. Lastly, we have Mr. Adam Sterling, a career member of the Foreign Service, a class of counselor, currently serves as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy at The Hague, Netherlands, position he has held since 2013. He's currently, he serves concurrently as Chargé at The Hague from 2013 to 2014. Previously, he served as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Azerbaijan from 2010 to 2013 with, with service as Chargé from 2010 to 2011 and during 2012. Uh, he also served as Director for Central and Eastern European Affairs on the National Security Council staff from 2006 to 2009. Again, a very distinguished panel whose service we appreciate deeply and, and certainly the support of their family members and others that allow them to do what they do so well. So with that, uh, Mr. Ms. Caterling, if you would begin and summarize your comments uh, without objection for both panels, um, your written testimony certainly will be entered into the record. And again, we thank you, and if you can begin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and to all the members of the committee. It is an honor to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to the Oriental Republic of Uruguay. I deeply appreciate the confidence that President Obama and Secretary Kerry have placed in me by sending my name to the Senate for your consideration. My family accompanies me here today, my husband David Franz, who is also a Foreign Service Officer, my daughter Catherine, my son Alex, yes, we pulled them out of school so that they can learn how our government functions. Like my kids who have grown up in the Foreign Service, I too am a child of the Foreign Service. My father grew up in the New Jersey of the Great Depression, and he was forever grateful and very proud to represent our country as a Foreign Service officer. He met my Bolivian mother at his first overseas post in Cochabamba, Bolivia. I grew up in this bicultural international environment as an outsider. My parents taught me to consider various points of view and to search for common ground. So since entering the Foreign Service in 1988, I've carried that essential approach with me building bridges of understanding and of joint endeavor. Overseas, I've served three tours in the Western Hemisphere, two tours in post-Soviet countries, and three tours in Africa. I believe that the breadth of my career experiences and work on various policy issues would prepare me well to represent the United States, should you vote to confirm me. The United States and Uruguay cooperate across a broad spe spectrum of issues, we are partners in making our world more secure. We fight against drug traffickers, human smugglers, illicit financial flows, cyber criminals, and international terrorism. We cooperate in international peacekeeping and the protection of civilians. We seek to increase bilateral trade and investment to create more jobs and opportunity at home. With Uruguay, we can reassert our hemisphere's commitment to democratic governance, to freedom of expression and freedom of assembly, to freedom from arbitrary detention and arrest, and to independent judiciaries. 
Both Uruguay and the United States have a common cause in the equal treatment of people without regard to their race or gender, sexual orientation, social origin, or religion. We believe human rights are universal and intrinsic to each individual. The United States and Uruguay share these, and many, these many interests and values, and should you vote to confirm me as U.S. Ambassador to Uruguay, my commitment to you and to my fellow Americans is to do my best to help build a world that is more secure, more prosperous, and more just. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Sobel. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Chairman Corker. Thank you, Ranking Member Cardin. Thank all the members of the committee. Uh, and I am greatly honored to uh, serve, to have been nominated to serve as the U.S. Executive Director uh, to the IMF. And I thank uh, Secretary Geithner and Lou for their uh, support. I'm delighted to be joined today by my wife, Martha Halperin. Um, in the interest of brevity, uh, and uh, I'll turn to uh, shorten my statement just for the record. Uh, Seventy years ago, as our brave soldiers fought in World War II to liberate the globe from tyranny and dictatorship, our nation's financial diplomats took the lead in creating a new vision for international economic cooperation. Their vision shunned protectionism and beggar thy neighbor currency policies, forces that helped catalyze a war, and instead trumpeted multilateralism and shared prosperity. At the center of that vision, they created the IMF. Since its inception, the fund has well served the world economy and U.S. national security and economic interests. Whether it be in helping to mitigate economic crises in Latin America in the 1980s, support the transition of the ex-Soviet states in the 1990s, combat the Asian and emerging market crises of the latter 90s, provide concessional support and debt relief for poverty alleviation in low-income countries, or tackle the European crises, crisis of the past years. Without the IMF, these developments had the potential to rock geopolitical stability to a much greater extent, often in countries with strategic significance to our national security. Without the IMF, these developments also had the potential to spread more virulent around the world and seriously harm U.S. growth and jobs through decreased export opportunities, lost foreign investment, and financial shocks. Throughout my career, I have seen firsthand the IMF's strengths its ability to act as the world's first and rapid crisis responder is an unparalleled global public good, as is its excellence in designing and supporting country reform programs. The IMF brings together officials from around the world, creating a culture of shared understanding. It fosters multilateral rules of the road. Its technical assistance helps countries build the infrastructure for more robust economic policies. The IMF surveillance can help prevent crises. But despite the fund's strengths, the organization, like any other, has room for improvement. For example, in better analyzing and articulating policies to tackle modest global growth, addressing global rebouncing and exchange rate issues, strengthening its work on crisis prevention and debt sustainability, supporting pro-poor spending in low-income countries, and helping make financial sectors more resilient. I firmly believe in tenaciously defending U.S. interests and in advancing multilateralism, as well as in working pragmatically and collegially with analytic rigor and in a nonpartisan manner. I also believe in the IMF's mission and that our nation's leadership of the fund is critical. Those beliefs have guided my career. If confirmed as U.S. Executive Director, I will work vigorously to continue to strengthen and improve the IMF consistent with those beliefs. 
I will dedicate myself to doing my utmost to work with Congress to help forge a stronger consensus in our country in support of the IMF and its critical global role. And I thank this committee for its strong backing of the fund in securing the recent passage of legislation to implement the 2010 quota and governance reforms. Again, to have been nominated by the President to represent the United States in the IMF, the very institution at the center of America's post-World War II global economic and financial vision, is a tremendous and humbling honor and a responsibility that I'm eager to undertake. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Sterling. Uh, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, appearing before you as President Obama's nominee to serve as United States Ambassador to the Slovak Republic is an honor and privilege. I am grateful to the President and Secretary Kerry for the trust and confidence they have placed in me. Ranking, Mr. Ranking Member, I bring 26 years of foreign service experience to this position. For more than 20 of those years, my partner in all aspects of this global life has been my wife, Virla Coignet. Virla works to advance global health as an expert consultant to the Global Fund to combat HIV, AIDS, malaria, and TB. Virla broke away from a mission with the Global Fund to fly here yesterday all the way from India. Um, our family diplomatic team includes as well our 17-year-old daughter Elka and 15-year-old son Bram. They broke away from school in our current home in the Netherlands to fly all the way back here from there yesterday. I'm exceptionally proud to introduce the three of them to you. My experience includes leading two U.S. missions overseas and work on the Slovak Republic and its neighbors as Director of Central and Eastern European Affairs on the National Security Council staff. Less than a quarter century after the peaceful dissolution of Czechoslovakia, the Slovak Republic has emerged as a trusted NATO ally and stalwart member of the transatlantic community. A democratic and increasingly prosperous Slovakia serves as a powerful example and source of stability in its strategically important region. The accession of Slovakia and six other countries to the NATO alliance in 2004 strengthened our collective security. Slovak soldiers have participated in a variety of NATO operations, including today in Afghanistan as part of the Resolute Support Mission. Slovakia has also shown a strong willingness to invest in its defense capabilities, committing to ramp up defense spending from approximately 1% of GDP to 1.6% by 2020. Last year's decision to purchase nine US-made Black Hawk helicopters is tangible evidence of progress. If confirmed, I will seek to build upon this modernization momentum. Slovakia has also provided significant uh, support to the people of Ukraine by enabling reverse flows of natural gas to Ukraine. If confirmed, I will seek even closer bilateral cooperation on issues affecting Ukraine. One of the newer members of the Eurozone, Slovakia has one of the fastest growing economies in Europe. Our economic partnership also continues to grow with some 140 American companies operating in Slovakia and trade between our two countries exceeding $2.5 billion in 2015. While economic progress continues, Slovakia still faces the challenges of fighting corruption and institutionalizing rule of law. If confirmed, I will make promoting opportunities for U.S. business and improving Slovakia's investment climate one of my top priorities. We will also continue to advocate for the rights of minorities, for greater inclusion of Roma, and for the human rights and dignity of all refugees and migrants regardless of background. Mr. Ranking Member, Slovakia shares our democratic values as well as our goal of a Europe whole, free, and at peace. 
If given the opportunity, I will do my utmost to advance our shared aims. Thank you. Uh, once again, I want to thank all three of our uh, nominees for being willing to come forward and, uh, it's, uh, and your families that are here and those that could not make it here. We thank you because, as I said earlier, we know it's a shared sacrifice and we very much appreciate that. Uh, Chairman Corker was called to another meeting where he had to vote. That's the reason the Banking Committee is having a nomination uh, vote on uh, an important position in Treasury. Uh, dealing with international uh, finance. So that's the reason why he is not here. Uh, as we explained earlier, uh, the seven nomination, nominees that are before us today are all been well vetted from the point of view of their background and their previous commitments to public service. There will be questions asked for the record, but I, I want to, uh, we uh, have a minute or two. Let me, if I might, Uruguay has certainly been one of the leaders uh, in our hemisphere uh, working with President Obama to advance uh, human rights issues, meeting with President Obama, with the, the President, with the uh, Cuban activists. So uh, it, it seems to me there is great promise in, in that country to see stronger leadership in advancing the good governance in our own hemisphere. I'd be interested uh, in your views as to how we can build on that bilateral relationship uh, to help in so many countries in our hemisphere that have significant problems of corruption and good governance. And let me give you a chance, if I might, to, to respond in regards to your thoughts there. Certainly. Thank you, Senator Cardin. It is very true that Uruguay itself has a long tradition of good governance and of respect for human rights and for building its own society that is, that is more equal. It has, for a very long time, asked American administrations to improve the relations between the U.S. and Cuba, so you won't be surprised when it welcomed, of course, the opening of embassies in the two, in the two governments, in the two countries. This is an opportunity, I think, for us, together with Uruguay now, to use its strong and credible voice when it comes to issues of democratic governance and respect for human rights to make the push now in Cuba and in places like Venezuela to speak out for those who need their human rights respected in those countries and elsewhere where the equal treatment of people is not as we would all hope it to be. If confirmed, I would hope to work with Uruguay to make the case for improved democratic governance and respect for human rights, just like Uruguay has at home as we try to be ourselves um, across the hemisphere. Thank you, and we look forward to working with you on that. Mr. Sterling in Slovakia, obviously a close ally of the United States, uh, one of our uh, military allies, uh, a lot of things to be celebrant about. However, they are not where they should be on fighting corruption. They have had serious challenges. Maybe we expect more from our, our, our allies uh, to show by example. How do you see our mission working with the, the government uh, to advance uh, better standards to deal with uh, governance issues? Um, Senator Cardin, uh, corruption is indeed uh, a serious problem in Slovakia as it is in many other countries in the region. The United States has been working with Slovakia since it achieved independence in 1993 to build institutions that are well-rooted uh, in the rule of law. Uh, the United States' role, as I see it, is twofold. One, it's uh, advocacy uh, for good governance, for promoting the message that uh, governance uh, matters, both 
to uh, underlie uh, our bilateral relations and the place of Slovakia within uh, the European Union and NATO. And second of all, uh, we give uh, technical assistance in a number of areas. Uh, for example, uh, last year we, helped, we provided legal assistance to help promulgate a new uh, judicial ethics code. We are now working with prosecutors uh, through expert assistance um, in promulgating a, uh, a new uh, prosecution ethics code. All of these are steps in the right direction, but of course uh, the ultimate proof of success is how they are implemented and we will follow up to make sure that these uh, new standards are met. There are certainly institutional changes that have to be made, but you're correct. It's whether there really is a commitment to change some of the long-standing problems, and that takes political leadership, but support from the United States can make that more of a reality. So we will be looking forward to your um, assessment as to what we can do to, to strengthen uh, that encouragement in our bilateral relationship. Mr. Sobel, IMF is a critically important uh, tool for international stability, for international development. Uh, if it does not put a priority on good governance, uh, you can put all of the uh, economic resources into a country, it'll be wasted. So how are you going to exercise leadership to make sure that the principles of integrity and anti-corruption uh, go into the policies at IMF? Thank you for the question, uh, Senators. Good question, um, and I fully agree with the thrust of your remarks. Um, the IMF has a macroeconomic and economic reform mandate. Uh, economic reforms can provide a critical foundation for uh, combating corruption. Um, I remember uh, early in my career, I worked on um, the uh, Soviet Union when it uh, collapsed, and what we found were there were all types of price controls um, that meant that uh, goods were siphoned off to a black market. Um, there were poor privatizations where, uh, uh, shall we say, you know, business people um, basically took resources away from the people in the state. And so I think that there's much that can be done. There's much that can be done in terms of uh, liberalizing prices. There's much that can be done in terms of uh, avoiding export quotas and the like that uh, result in rent-seeking behavior. The fund uh, has emphasized issues such as uh, corporate governance. So, I mean, there's a prominent case now where the Madame Lagarde recently spoke about the need to tackle anti-corruption far more forcefully in Ukraine, which is a critical uh, program, and was putting elements on the table such as uh, disclosure by officials, other assets, improving corporate governance and state-owned enterprises, um, looking at uh, privatization, strengthening a prosecutor general's office and the anti-corruption uh, agency. So I think that there is much that the fund uh, can do uh, in this realm to help uh, combat uh, uh, corruption and, uh, and strengthen governance. And uh, I promise you I will work actively to promote uh, th those objectives. I thank you. I, it is critically important we use all of our opportunities, uh, particularly on countries that are struggling. Ukraine has incredible challenges, and Russia is the culprit for its instability today. There is no question about that. It's continued interference in the territorial integrity and its uh, intimidations of its political system is pretty clear. But if Ukraine can't get 
its governance in order, it's not going to be able to, to make it. IMF can play a role, as can the other tools that we have available in our uh, um, international and bilateral diplomacy uh, toolbox need to be deployed. So I thank you very much for your response. Uh, as we said earlier, that we expect there will be questions for the record that will be asked to each of you. We would ask that you would respond to those questions as promptly as possible so that we can try to um, take action on these nominations as quickly as possible. And with that, we will we'll keep the record open until close of business on Monday for the purposes of questions to be asked. And with that, the hearing stands adjourned. Again, thank you all very much.